0: and welcome to The Musical Man, the podcast that shines new light on the Tony Award for Best Musical. Each week we examine the nominees and winners of that esteemed decoration, and this week we'll be discussing Grind.
1: This must be the place you heard about, the word about town is out. What's black and white with girls, girls, girls? Eh? Hey? It's my place here, it's Harry Earl. This must be the place they're talking up. They're walking up here in droves. They love this white, and black, and white. No mix, no match, no worries. Right! It ain't the best place. It ain't the worst place. But like the man said, in, in the, the first, first place, place, this must be the, the place. But first, how
0: are we doing? I've been sick, Patty. I've been sick. I'm a sick little boy. Wah. I need to have my temperature taken. I gotta watch to price this right while having lukewarm Sprite. But I'm getting better. And frankly, we have so much to talk about today. This week's subject is grind. Let's get those show facts right here and now. Let's dive in, shall we? Everyone got those swimsuits on? Everyone. When did you eat? When did you... Don't dive into the show facts if you've eaten within the last 30 minutes. That's okay, you kids have fun. I'm just kidding, I'm the cool dad. Grind was a 1985 nominee for the Tony Award or best Musical. Yes, that's right. We're going back to the year of my birth. 1985. Just imagine in 1985, Jimmy Carter is in the White House and everyone's talking about a little show called Caroline in the City. In 1975, we, we started in 1985, let's go to 1975 when producers from Universal Studios approached Faye Kanan about writing a screenplay that focused on a biracial burlesque house in In 1930s Chicago The screenplay was ultimately Not produced and Faye would come To adapt it for the stage Grind would ultimately open on Broadway on April 16th 1985 at the Mark Hellinger Theater and it would run For a total of 71 performances Not great. The book as I mentioned Was written by Faye Kanan. The music Was by Larry Grossman. The director uh, I'm sorry the lyrics were Ellen Fitzhugh and the director Now it's your time. The director was Hal Prince. The musical director was Paul Geminjani, I'm just butchering that name, I know that. The choreographer was Lester Wilson. The set design was by Clark Dunham, previously cited for his work on Bubbling Brown Sugar, if you have heard that episode. And the lighting design was by Ken Bellington, and the costume design was by Florence Klotz. To review and extend my commentary from the Bubbling Brown Sugar episode I just referenced, as well as the Caroline or Change episode, None of the Grind writers are black, and out of the entire creative team, only one member, Lester Wilson, I mentioned he's the choreographer, is black. This is not the balance you would want to strike for a show like this, which is explicitly about white and black characters and their struggle to come together professionally and romantically, more on that plot in a moment. I just have to assume that beyond the hiring of Lester Wilson as choreographer, there was little to no effort here in finding or hiring black artists for these key creative positions. How is the black experience being represented on that side of the aisle, on that side of production? You hired a lot of black performers, but where are the black writers and designers? Hello? I'm just putting it out there. I'm not saying. I always come to this part. (laughs) In my commentary on past episodes, there's always a moment where I go, I'm not saying. So this is that part. I'm not saying. White people shouldn't write about shit they don't know about. But you know what? I think that is what I'm saying. If we didn't know that back in 1985, that white people should maybe not write about shit they don't actually know about, we should know it in 2019. I say should because Green Book won Best Picture. Don't surround yourself with white faces and then expect a lot of praise when you tackle a subject like racism as it affects black people that I'm just saying the, the segment started with I'm not saying and now it's ending with me just saying I'm just saying the original Broadway cast of Grind included Ben Vereen who you might know from his work in Pippin or the film All That Jazz Stubby Kay, who originated the role of Nicely Nicely Johnson in both the stage and film versions of Guys and Dolls Lee Wallace Joey Faye Marion Ramsey Hope Clark Valerie Pettiford, Candy Brown Winona Smith Carol Woods you should recognize that name I unfortunately did not when I came across it. We'll get more into why I should have recognized... Well, hey, we're all going to get a very firm reminder as to the talent and abilities of Carol Woods, okay? So don't worry about that, Carol. Uh, The cast also included Sharon Murray, Brian McKay, Oscar Stokes, Leonard John Crowfoot, Timothy Nolan, Donald Acree, Ruth Brisbane, uh, Lilani Jones, Ray Roderick, Kelly Walters, Steve Owsley, and Malcolm Perry. Additional Tony nods. Beyond its nomination for Best Musical, Grind was nominated for Best Book of a Musical. That nomination would have gone to Faye Kanan. It was nominated for Best Original Score. That would have gone to Larry Grossman and Ellen Fitzhugh. It actually won a Tony Award uh, for Best Performance by a Featured Actress. That went to Leilani Jones for her portrayal of the character Satin. Uh, It was nominated for Best Direction of a Musical. That went to Harold Prince. Nominated for Best Scenic Design. That went to Clark Dunham. And it won an additional Tony Award. Uh, That was Best Costume Design. That award went to Florence Klotz. So, in including Best Musical, seven nominations total, and two wins. Uh, The plot, let's get a nice description of the plot. So, uh, much like my experience with Bubbling Brown Sugar, I had no ability at first to understand or know anything about the plot of Grind, but luckily, the book was available at the Harold Washington Library Branch, downtown Chicago. Thank you very much. So I went down there on a Sunday, and I I, I sat down with the book, and I took notes. Did I uh, write out an entire plot? Description that I then published to Wikipedia because up until that point Wikipedia didn't have any any sort it had nothing. Yeah, at least Bubbling Brown Sugar had a bare bones description of what the show was about on Wikipedia. In the case of Grind, there was nothing, and now we have this delicious plot summary that I'm going to read to you now. The singers, dancers, comedians, and strippers who make up the ensemble of Harry Earl's burlesque take the stage and welcome the audience. The year is 1933, and the city is Chicago. We We are introduced to the white characters, Harry Earl, the owner of the venue, his wife, Romaine, who is a stripper, and the lead white comedians, Sully and Gus. We are also introduced to the black characters, Leroy, the lead black comedian, Satin, who is also a stripper, and Maybelle, the wardrobe lady for the black performers. Backstage, the color lines are harshly drawn. The white performers congregate in one dressing room while the black performers congregate in another. Black and white performers do not perform together. on stage during the various acts as dictated by the local authorities. Leroy, a known playboy who has had affairs with many of the black chorus girls, flirts with satin and orders ribs for the women. Harry interviews Lynette, who is applying to become one of the black chorus girls. In a private moment, Gus confesses to his partner Sully that he's been losing his eyesight. Sully assures Gus that as long as the routines go well, no one will notice. On stage, Gus performs a hospital ...hospital sketch with Satin, who plays a sexy nurse, and an actor referred to in the book as the Stooge. The sketch goes awry when Gus accidentally sticks the Stooge with a prop needle, which causes the actor to quit the show. Gus tries to brush off the incident, but Harry Earl, who again runs the burlesque house, is quick to point out that this is the third Stooge to quit in two weeks because of Gus's actions. Satin goes on stage to perform a strip routine... Meanwhile, Gus, unable to find a replacement sketch partner, enters the alley just outside the venue so he can think. In a moment of desperation, he enlists Doyle, one of the many homeless men who reside in the alley. Doyle is drunk and doesn't speak, but Gus moves forward nonetheless. Inside the venue, Harry speaks with Dix, a neighborhood cop. Dix is assured that none of the performers are violating color lines and is invited to take a look around to ensure this fact. Gus introduces Doyle to Harry Earl, who rejects the bum outright. Nevertheless, Gus tells Doyle to wait for him in his dressing room. Doyle, confused and unfamiliar with the venue, walks upstairs to the black dressing room. Leroy arrives with ribs and continues to flirt with Satin, who has been unsettled by by the appearance of the cop known as Dix. Leroy assures her and the black chorus girls that everything will be fine. And on a side note, it will be fine because we never see or hear from Dix the cop again. That plot thread is completely thrown out with the bathwater. <laughs> if I can mix a couple of metaphors. When he goes upstairs to the black dressing room, Leroy is surprised to find Doyle waiting. He leads the stranger downstairs to the white dressing room and offers him a bottle of whiskey, which Doyle eagerly accepts. Gus, Sully, and Romaine desperately try to sober Doyle up in time for his first performance. In the alley, Satin meets with her kid brother, Grover. Satin has been giving Grover money she's earned to help their mother, Mrs. Ovitha Faye. Mrs. Faye, who appears in the alley, makes it clear that she does not want her daughter's money, as it has been earned working at the burlesque venue. Mrs. Faye exits with Grover, leaving Satin to fume. Leroy tries to comfort her, though she She assumes it is one of his passes. She reveals her true name is Letitia and insists that the woman Leroy sees on stage every night is not the woman he'd be bringing home. When she eventually settles down, it will be with the kind of man, quote, they don't make anymore. Leroy, taken aback by her display of emotion, makes a joke before heading on stage. During his routine, Leroy despairs over his inability to be serious when the moment counts. Gus and Doyle, having managed to squeak through their first performance. Exit into the alley. When Gus tries to worm his way out of paying Doyle for his work, the latter lashes out. Gus begs Doyle to return the next day so that they may continue working together. Doyle, left alone, begins to sing to an unseen wife and son. He secretly longs to die so that he may be with them. Satin, who has seen him standing here in the alley, asks if he's okay, to which Doyle replies, quote, I I could tell you I'm feeling no pain, ma'am, but I'd be lying. The next morning, the performers slowly interest Gus waits for Doyle's arrival. The company sings, with the performers complaining and Maybelle encouraging them to do their best. We see Satin discussing a bike with Leroy over the phone. Gus is delighted to find a newly shaven, cleanly dressed Doyle waiting in the dressing room. Leroy enters with a new bike that he and Satin plan to give to Grover on his 10th birthday. When it's revealed that Leroy doesn't know how to ride a bike... Doyle offers to ride it to Grover's home. Leroy and Satin mock Mrs. Fay as they head to the south side of Chicago. At Mrs. Fay's home, Satin and Leroy ride just as Doyle coasts in on Grover's new bike. They present an upside down cake to Grover, uh, prepared by Romaine, but Mrs. Fay incensed denounces the party so that she may focus on her ironing. Uh, If you think there's ever going to be any sort of arc where Mrs. Fay comes around, there really isn't one. That's another side note, just to let you know. Doyle tells a story about his childhood that transfixes the group, including Mrs. Faye, the old woman ultimately joins in as Grover blows out his birthday candles. I guess that's supposed to be her moment of redemption because, again, we never see or hear from her again. Talk about a thankless role. I get to play the cantankerous mother. What a fun part for an actress. Doyle helps Grover learn how to ride his bike, but then a quartet of white punks, they are referred to as punks in the script, they confront the group and destroy the bike. Leroy, who is unable to process the situation, escapes into the closing number of the first act. Satin protests, but ultimately gives into the performance, assuring Leroy that what they've just experienced was nothing more than a bad dream, Satin gives Romaine a note from Grover thanking her for his upside-down birthday cake. Though she is reluctant to accept, Satin agrees to sit in the white dressing room with Romaine and talk about the birthday party. She is unable to reveal to Romaine exactly what happened on that day. Leroy shows up with a receipt for a replacement bike, but Satin rejects his offer, insisting that he can't, quote, keep smiling everything away. Romaine enters the black dressing room to talk to Leroy and encourage him to keep trying with Satin. When Harry uh, sees that his wife is exiting the black dressing room, he reminds her that they could be shut down for such a violation, and his wife Romaine dismisses him out of hand. Gus introduces a juggling routine to Doyle, but is infuriated when his bad eyesight prevents him from juggling properly. Doyle suggests that they incorporate his mistakes into the act, and as they create this revised routine, Satin watches from afar and wonders about Doyle's past. Gus notices that Doyle is taking notes and insists that a true performer should, quote, never put it in writing. Doyle gets it, and the three performers come together for a big finish. Uh, Satin flinches when she realizes Doyle is holding her arm in this moment. When Gus and Doyle perform their juggling act on stage, it ends with Gus accidentally walking off the stage and becoming enveloped in the stage works. Harry declares that Gus is no longer fit to work at the venue. Doyle promises to help his new partner, seeing as Gus was the one to pull him out of the alley and give him a reason for living. Gus tries to appear cheerful, but begins to fall apart when left alone. Romaine and Sully perform a comedy routine when a gunshot is heard backstage. Harry appears before the audience to report that an accident has occurred and the show has been cancelled. Doyle is shown standing next to a funeral wreath as Maybel, the wardrobe lady, and the company mourn the death of Gus. Leroy and Satin arrive backstage on a Sunday, having been unable to locate Doyle, who has gone missing since the funeral. Leroy takes a moment to clarify to Satin that he doesn't view her as a one-time girl. He wants to... be with her permanently for the rest of their lives, if she'll have him. Satin is lost in thought and states that she'll need time to think about Leroy's offer. Uh, Despite this non-committal response, Leroy believes he's on the right track and privately claims victory. Satin realizes that the only spot she hasn't checked uh, in her search for Doyle is the alley outside of the venue, and when she goes out into the alley, she's horrified to find a drunken Doyle being beaten by what are referred to in the script as Street toughs, She barely manages to pry Doyle out of their grip uh, by threatening to call the cops. Doyle is taken to Satin's apartment, where he drunkenly calls out for his dead wife and son. Sitting up in bed, he catatonically reveals how, when he was living in Ireland, he made a bomb intended to kill British soldiers on a train. It was only after the explosion that Doyle learned his wife and son were on that very self-same train. He collapses, and the next morning he reveals to Satin that his real name is Thomas. They kiss, and when Satin opens her door to leave for work, she is met with the sight of two cartons of ribs. She and Doyle realize that Leroy must have been outside the entire time. On stage, Leroy sings about Chicago and a century of progress during a big production number for the burlesque audience. The chorus girls appear on stage with Satin, and Leroy proceeds to humiliate her, ripping off her wig and g-string in front of the entire audience. Satin escapes to her dressing room and is confronted by Leroy, who slaps her. He gets into a fight with Doyle that highlights the color line and causes the company to fight amongst themselves. Harry intervenes and demands that everyone get back to work. Uh, Satin appears on stage to perform her standard strip routine. She is interrupted by the street toughs, who have returned. Uh, They throw tomatoes at her until she is let off stage by the stage manager. Doyle confronts the street toughs, and the company spills onto the stage to help fend them off. The group freezes in a moment of stylized theatricality, so that Leroy and Satin can be shown backstage. They make amends, and Leroy vows to help her in any way that he can, even if they can't be together. The street toughs are defeated, and the company triumphantly crosses the color barrier, vowing that they won't be segregated moving forward. Leroy, Satin, and Doyle are shown arm-in-arm once more as the curtain comes down. Now, if you're like me and were listening to that plot description and noticed more than a few comparisons to the 1966 show Cabaret, uh, we're on the same page. I'm right there with you. Uh, Here are the comparisons that I noted. Maybe you picked up on a few more examples. But... Both shows take place in the early 1930s, pre-World War II. Both uh, place a performance venue at the heart of the story and grind that would be Harry Earl's burlesque, and in Cabaret, of course, it's the Kit Kat Club. These shows are metatextual in that they often reference the, the existence, the presence of an audience. Both venues are essentially strip joints that occasionally incorporate sketch routines and other types of novelty numbers. Both venues try to provide an escape from an oppressive world and its prejudices. In Cabaret, the MC sings, leave your troubles outside so life is disappointing. Forget it. In here, life is beautiful. The girls are beautiful. And in Grind, Leroy sings at the top of the show, when things start getting rough outside this is the perfect place to hide. Both venues are nonetheless affected by the prejudices that they seek to escape from. Both shows include romantic subplots that are challenged by society. In Grind, uh, that couple is Satin and Doyle. And In Cabaret, it's Fräulein Schneider and Herr Schultz. The key difference between the two shows is that despite the soaring final notes of Cabaret, you get a clear sense that its characters will be swallowed up by World War II. The final note of Grind, by comparison, is defiant and optimistic, with the characters making a progressive stance far before the Civil Rights Movement would seek to eradicate segregation once and for all. Unfortunately, as I came to find, Grind is really no cabaret. They might have some, you know, textual comparisons, but cabaret soars, whereas Grind tends to putter and never really take off, which is the unfortunate conclusion that I came to. For the purposes of this episode, I listened to the 1985 original Broadway cast album. That is not available via Spotify. Normally on Twitter, I would provide a link to the Spotify uh, album that you could then listen to in prep for the show, but as I said, it's not available there. It's not available on iTunes or even YouTube, so I have provided via Twitter a Dropbox link, a public Dropbox link that you can very easily click on, and from there you can listen to each individual track. I would encourage you to, I think this is a much more obscure show than we're used to dealing with here on the show, and I would think that most people wouldn't have a reference for it, and it's very important that you do when I talk about some of these songs, because some of these songs are just truly nuts, whereas most of them are kind of forgettable, but those really kooky, crazy numbers. I would I would encourage you to take a look at that Dropbox link and check them out. I also watched the Tony's clip in which the cast performs the opening number of the show, which is called This Must Be The Place. The Tony's performance showcases the super stylized costuming and the frenetic engaging choreography that comes with the number. It also ends with a very odd cut to a pair of audience members who are sort of defiantly stubborn refusing. I assume they are refusing to applaud this production number they have just seen. Uh, you know, these these two fucking white honkies, they really crack me up and infuriate me. They are shown not applauding after the performance. I mean, what the fuck are these two so pissed off about? They look actively distempered and angry. I call them temper and tantrum myself. I think that should be canon moving forward. There's an image I took, an Im- a screenshot of them that is also available on Twitter. They, they just really personify a sort of crinkly, crass, grumpy-as-fuck white-bullshit privilege position that, that, man, they really crystallize a very specific wasp energy and uh, it it delights and maddens me to no end. Hey, Temper and uh, Tantrum, why don't you go to the bathroom and eat your own assholes? I'm thinking you need a late-night snack. That's what I wrote down. (laughs) Let's talk about the songs. So again, get to that Dropbox link and check out these songs. So This Must Be The Place, Uh, it comes directly out of an overture which is appropriately bump and grindy. It really evokes that uh, style of choreography that we're going to be getting throughout the show. We're going to be getting all of these numbers where uh, women are scantily clad, they're going to be stripping for the audience, and that overture does a really good job of setting that foundation. The song This Must Be The Place itself is a good jaunty opener, though it doesn't do much for Ben Vereen as Leroy. He plays the character of Leroy. It doesn't do much for him musically, in my opinion.
1: This place is to show its face because every- must be the place that's making good by taking good care of you. Uh, how far these girls go, heaven knows. Much farther than your quarter goes. This must be the place and what a place you got- The song has
2: this
0: intentionally staccato, breathless quality. Everyone's moving like freight trains throughout the entire number, and I can see some audiences, you know, the curtain has just risen, and I can see some audiences getting a little lost, despite the fact that the song is only meaning to establish atmosphere and place rather than, uh, you know, story details. A Sweet Thing Like Me is a good, if not great number, and as I said, that kind of is is what it comes down to for a lot of these songs.
2: You're so big, and you're so strong, you're so tough, and you're so tall, you're so rough, and you're so hard, you're so big, and I'm so small.
0: like there have to be two dozen or more numbers like these in musical theater history where the female lead, in this case it's Satin, uh, she's introduced via this coquettish interaction with the audience. Uh, in this context it's a you know a full-on strip number. Don't Tell Mama from Cabaret comes to mind when I hear a song like A Sweet Thing Like Me but when the chorus girls on this track join in with Satin it immediately evokes Hey Big Spender from Sweet Charity so let's hear the chorus girls from A Sweet Thing Like Me...
2: I don't pop my cork for every guy.
0: I think it's a more than apt comparison. It actually starts to feel truly original, a sweet thing like me. I mean, that actually starts to feel like it's coming to life within the last 15 to 20 seconds of the track. But by that point, the show it's more than ready to move on with itself. That's that I kind of came to that conclusion as well with a couple of these songs that only towards the end, do they decide to inject a little bit of originality and zaniness, and then we're just done. (laughs) And, and you, you feel let down unfortunately
1: plenty of times i've been in plenty of jams like back in 1906 the frisco fire curtain goes up i mean it really goes up and i'm about to become a baked banana for hire but me i get myself out I'm watching the rafters come tumbling down and how I run, I get myself out It's maybe the only time I didn't run back for a bow.
0: Stubby K gets a nice but not especially memorable character song called I Get Myself Out. This is the first time that we can really get a sense of his character and it's about all we're ever gonna get when it comes to a sense of his character. The song as written is capitalizing on what we liked about Stubby K when he played Nicely Nicely Johnson in Guys and Dolls. We we like to have him singing about an experience that he had, stories in which he got himself into and out of jams. I mean, that that's exactly what he was doing in Guys and Dolls when he sang Sit Down, You're Rockin' the Boat, and that's what he's doing here with I Get Myself Out. I guess I guess the thinking was, if it worked in 1950, it'll work in 1985, right? Well, not not so much overall. Not to be too down on Stubby Cat, I don't mean to be too down on him, but the, the flute that you hear in this track seems to be guiding him along.
1: Plenty of times. I've been in plenty of jams, like back in 1906.
0: Like, the musical director couldn't trust Stubby K to stay on track? You know, just listen to the flute, Stubby. I I couldn't help but kind of pick up on that. It seemed like a cheat for Stubby K. Okay, so my daddy always taught me to share is Ben Vereen's first big number. He gets a few because he's Ben Vereen. He's one of the big draws for this production. So, of course, he's going to get a handful of these. My Daddy Always Taught Me to Share is not good. It's just straight up not good. So, in the past, I've tried to give a little bit of credit by saying, you know, it's fine, but not especially memorable. This one is just, this is disposable. This is a song that could be completely lifted out of the show. And I really resent the fact that Ben Vereen was made to say the line, the lyric,
2: When
1: you come from a tar paper shack,
0: when you come from a tar paper shack, what the fuck did anyone in those writing meetings, those writing meetings, you know, I let's remind ourselves, entirely staffed and populated by white faces, what the fuck did anyone in those meetings know about living in a goddamn tar paper shack? Don't make a black actor say tar. Let's just make that a rule. If that wasn't a rule in 85, and it's still not on the books in 2019, that, that's just on the books now. Beverine is having... He's trying. I can't tell if he's genuinely having fun or really forcing himself to kind of sweat this out. Uh, uh, Obviously, he's working. I'm just gonna come down on that side of it. He he manages to lift it a bit, just a bit, just a little bit. to one man is the song that Satin sings to Leroy, making it clear to him that she is the type of woman who is she is strong and she is going to make very clear choices when it comes to the man that she is ultimately going to stand next to for the entirety of her life. She's not going to give herself to someone she feels has a passing fancy mentality when it comes to women. I would like to make another comparison to Guys and Dolls and hold this song up alongside the Sarah Brown song all know from guys and dolls. satin and sarah brown are both characters who have this very clear idea of what love and relationships mean to them or so they think little does sarah brown from guys and dolls know that she will ultimately fall for a gambler and little does satin from grind know that she is ultimately going to fall for a terrorist who inadvertently blew up his wife and child you know life's funny like that sometimes you know sometimes you wake up and you think to yourself oh i'm gonna be single for the rest of my life and sometimes you're really sad about it sometimes you think to yourself, no, I like to stand on my own two feet. I'm a strong, independent person. I don't need no man. And then you just fall for a domestic terrorist. Again, I like the ending of all things to One Man, where it finally becomes buoyant and and it takes off. You know, it, it has life in those final moments. But until that point, it sounds like any number of interchangeable torch songs you'd hear in a piano bar. Okay, so the line, the song, The Line that Ben Vereen sings as Leroy, this is actually pretty strong. And this is strong stuff. Vereen seems much more invested in this this inner turmoil monologue material that he has as Leroy. Uh, than, and I don't blame him. My daddy always taught me to share his pure time to go to the bathroom fluff. And this is meaty. It's very Follies, very Sondheim Follies. It, but it's evoking Sondheim without sounding like a Xerox.
1: I got more lines than Carter's got pills. Lines than a porcupine's got quills.
2: But never the right line for you, Satin. I should have said, Back off, hold on, don't talk about some perfect man to me. I should have said, Look here, look good. This here's your man That's what I mean to be Damn it, every time we see each other Why do you start seeing red? See this man inside instead That's what I should have said But I came up with a lie say what I feel. Won't I ever draw the line between what's funny and what's real? So the line, I would recommend
0: dipping into the line. I would recommend dipping into that opening number. (laughs) But everything in between, you can pretty much pass off. You can just jump over it. Oh, maybe you're a completionist. Maybe you want to hear the whole thing. That's fine, too. I'm not here to boss you around. All right, so I'm glad that we're here now. Katie, my love, which is Doyle's song. And Doyle is standing in the alley. He's standing by himself, and he is singing to his unseen dead wife and his unseen dead son. Listening to this was such... A strange and unintentionally funny experience for me. To reiterate, I read the book before sitting down with the cast album, and Doyle on the page reads as a very troubled, crazed man. He seems broken, and that makes sense. He's, you know, he's been living on the street, he's dealing with alcoholism, and he explicitly states that he's been trying to die so that he can be with his wife and son, but he doesn't have the ability to commit suicide, and so he's been driving Driving himself to the bottle, he's been living on the street, and he just wishes, he hopes, and he prays that one day his life, his light, will be snuffed out so he can be with them again. That image is so powerful. That image of Doyle standing alone in an alley, singing to those unseen loved ones. I thought reading the lyrics uh, in the book, I thought the song was going to be eerie and unsettling and uh, maybe that's my fault for bringing that kind of expectation to the song maybe I needed to be more objective but when I heard the actual like you know the the music that comes with these very heavy weighty words I I just I was utterly gobsmacked yeah you have to li- uh, just listen to this hey, my love, Timmy my lad,
2: I know I promised you I'd be dead But something or other will rear its head And stand there in my way Plutally alone Katie my pet, Timmy my boy Plutally alone I'm caught again being still alive A downright embarrassing state When I've done everything I know Pluturally alone It's cold where I sleep, it's poison I drink How can it take so long? You'd think I'd awake and find me gone. What am I doing wrong? That, what
0: you just heard, is basically, oh, Danny boy, this is... Operatic, bedtime, 1940s lullaby stuff. This is moldy musical theater stuff that we're getting served up here. It's kind of awe-inspiring how, A, the song is totally at odds with the score's established style, and B, it is also at odds with its dark lyrics. I can easily imagine audiences cracking up at this, just tittering and giggling through the whole thing, and it should have been reworked completely from the ground up. The Grind is a sort of mini showcase for Carol Woods, who plays the wardrobe lady, Maybell. Later on, she'll get a full song, but this is the moment when I realized, oh wait, of course, this is the Carol Woods, who played Mrs. Crosby, the housekeeper, in The Goodbye Girl, in case you were like me and didn't remember her name right off the bat. Uh, Here she plays a fucking wardrobe lady. So I think overall we did her a disservice in terms of her Broadway career. Whenever she appears on an album, I sit up and take notice. And I think that means something. And we should have given her more opportunities and a lot more credit than she got.
1: That back there. Is such a painful minute Who the hell Would want to stay in it I'd rather forget it Who'd want to face it Did something happen I can't place it Speaking of places And speaking of faces Let's speak of anything That'd be uh, That'd uh, Aces That back there It sorta let the rain in You ain't here To hear us all complaining, too much strain, you know it's awful draining, why push pain? You're here for entertaining. Speaking of pushing, come pull up a cushion, toss me my cane and my hat.
0: This crazy place slash act one finale, I like what you just heard. I like how the track starts. I like that very just quiet drumming instrumental that very repetitive instrumental and I continue to enjoy the moments where we get to go inside Leroy's head Uh, he's the only character in the entire cast of characters that we're allowed to do that with we can sort of fully dive into his subconscious and hear all of the very insecure panicked thoughts that this character has Uh, Ben Vereen brings this home much more naturally than the lightweight material that he's had to whip into shape at other points in the show uh, it's also one of the few moments where the show tries to get theatrical in its staging. Uh, it has the actors on stage freeze. And this is shortly after the, the white punks have destroyed Grover's bike. I'll say this. What a weird, difficult thing to do on stage. As written, I didn't really go into this. The white punks, they take Grover's bike. This is a bike for a 10-year-old boy. And they all proceed to ride on top of each other. They, like, piggyback one on top of the other while This bike around on stage and then they proceed to destroy it. They dismantle it piece by piece And that just seems like that would take a really long time in real life and on stage There's no prop bike that can be torn to pieces. It's not gonna be made out of styrofoam So I just imagine a 15 minute A 15-minute sequence where we just see, it's like we're watching a really stark, super realistic play, not a big showy musical. I just think that's hilarious that we're, that in my mind, you would have to watch that entire process from start to finish. But getting back to the fact that the actors freeze on stage so Leroy can have this inner monologue moment, you know, freezing on stage it's, it's corny, it's a moldy piece of stylization, but I'll take anything that breaks up <laughs> what is otherwise a very kind of confused and muddled plot. I'll take anything that's just sort of weird and stylized. Whatever. Just give me anything. This show that like premiered in 85 but seems to have one foot stuck in 1950s Broadway and another foot stuck in 1970s psychosexual dread. I'll take anything I can get that breaks up that that weird soupy stew that i am not really enjoying overall like i've been i've been slurping it up spoonful by spoonful and you know when they freeze on stage I can just think to myself oh that's fun <laughs> oh, oh that's a, you know it's theater like why not
2: you got <laughs> to let it be said what you it's red got Never put it
1: in writing It's temporary, oh, permanent Looms this weekend Say that you, you say talk, something I is stopped Nothing okay okay, ever works well That's Never me. put it in writing the spur And of it moment never got, got
2: said Each can make repairs she she On the toes
1: Keep And you won't stop With all of When the man upstairs
0: The trio of who is he slash never put it in writing slash you talk. I talk, this is fine. This is totally fine. It invokes the well-tread songwriting tactic of (laughs) write a few mini songs, mini, just little tiny appetizer hors d'oeuvre songs, and then at the end of the track, you overlay them at the end to impress your aunt in the second row. Look, it's all three songs on top of each other. I'm not gonna sit here and say I don't like that kind of songwriting. I'm a sucker. I get pulled into that too. It's fun. I learned all about it while (laughs) while taking classes at Second City for musical improv. That's one of the first things they teach you about, but I'm not gonna give this Example a lot of points. It pulls off something. That's not really that hard to pull off So uh, you get a couple of crumbs grind, but I'm not gonna give you the full cookie Okay, no no cookie for you. Okay So I will say that I got a, a bit of a chill while listening to the song at timing, which is sung by Romaine and Sully. This is the moment where offstage we don't see this but offstage we hear the gunshot, the, the gunshot that signifies that uh, Gus has uh, potentially killed himself, and we come to find that he has indeed killed himself. What's so creepy about it is that you can hear the gunshots mixing really well with the orchestrations to to an extent that I, I started to question myself. I wondered, are those the gunshots that I've read about in the plot, or is is it part of the instrumental? And it, it took me aback. When I, when I thought that I heard those gunshots, it really kind of shook me. It's subtle and... And haunting when you know what's actually happening. I, I, I don't think I've said this, but I'm really glad that I read the book before sitting down with the album because without that context, it's really difficult to understand what's going on. And I never would have picked up on something like the gunshots being mixed in with the instrumentals. I did enjoy that moment. I did. I did. I enjoyed it. of mine is the moment in which Carol Woods is asked to be the black woman who stops the show with a very loud song written by white people. This is in okay, again, just using that word, and I apologize. I, I should get a thesaurus. But this is a perfectly serviceable, that's what we'll use this time around. The password is serviceable. Bing! Uh, It's serviceable. It's a serviceable riff on the musical theater church revival number that you hear in so many shows. What's so funny and odd about it is that it has a very crystal clear 80s quality that clashes somewhat with the more old-fashioned tunes we've heard leading up to it. It sounds like something off of a Carol Woods solo album. I realized while listening to this that Gus's Suicide is little more than cheap drama injected into a It's very exploitative. Uh, The show needed, I think it was getting sweaty, it was getting bored with itself, and it didn't know how to keep spinning its own wheels. So it throws in a very cheap device. That being a character just committing suicide. That's supposed to impact us on a caveman level. But I don't think audiences would buy it. I think it would fall on mute, bored audiences. And, And we're never in a million years going to feel the sorrow that Doyle experiences on stage when he's shown standing next to that funeral wreath i i I know that i'm supposed to feel something and i don't feel bad i don't feel like a robot when i don't i just i remember all over again how i'm just watching a show you know that these are just very thinly written characters played by actors who are trying their best and overall that doesn't really amount to much and that's really depressing isn't it (laughs) That all of this work went into a show on the part of, you know, everyone on one side of the aisle, everyone performing on the other side of the aisle, but their efforts don't add up to really anything. This is supposed to be a huge moment where the entire cast of The Burlesque House comes together to mourn the loss of someone that they have known for so many years, and all we're doing in the audience is just shifting our weight, checking the playbill, scratching the back of our heads or our fuck. Angles because our socks are getting itchy that's what we're thinking about they're on stage trying to sell this with their fucking their hearts and their asses and their souls and their voices and we're just sitting there going, no <laughs> no, not thanks <laughs> oh boy, being an actor is fucking tough
2: <laughs> oh, she just wants me to be
0: During the song, New Man, I have to point this out. Ben Vereen sings about being, quote, on the right track, which is ironic because if you're familiar with Pippin, he sang the song on the right track. What that? There you go. I pick up on these things cuz I'm The Musical Man. I do like this lyric from New Man where uh, Ben Vereen sings, "She just wants me to be me. I just found out that I can." It's one of the few really good crystallizations of d- a difficult to crystallize thought. He's come to this realization that uh, you know, I I can be myself. I I can start loving myself because I think that she loves me. So the love of so- Someone else is reminding me that I should be loving myself, that I should be taking care of myself, and trying to be a real person, not just a, a comedian and a rough trade playboy, you know what I mean? Uh, so I like that lyric a lot. The song, the, the writers seem to like it because they repeat it more than a few times. I think they understand that it's one of the few decent, memorable hooks that the show has. So they let us enjoy it. I, I, I'm not saying that it becomes repetitive or obnoxious. You do just get to enjoy Enjoy it more. Uh, the show, uh, the show does have Ben Vereen in the final moments of this song. It makes him do a Louis Armstrong impression, and between that and him having to talk about growing up in a tar paper shack, I would just say here's an idea: maybe don't be the white writing team that makes Ben Vereen do these things. Don't make him do a Louis Armstrong impression. It just comes off as fucking minstrelsy. I'm just going to be the one to say, it, go that far. It's really shitty that they thought to themselves, you know what's going to be really charming is to have this this black man, this performer uh, who has worked his whole life to, you know, get to this point that he can be a star on Broadway. He can be a lead draw on Broadway. What are we going to have him do in this new show, Grind? Well, let's have him do a Louis Armstrong impression. That's appropriate, right? No one will think that's inappropriate, right? Give me a fucking break. Fuck off.
2: It passes down from father to son. The blending of the powders into one. Down, down, downy, down, down. One shows the other how it's done. My father knew the chemist in town who never wrote the nature of the purchase town. Down, down, downy down, down One helps the other get it done I'll grind, grind, grind you down Charcoal and sulphur too Grind, grind, grind you down Make a bomb, bomb, bombity bomb Make a bomb of you I'm gonna get the sulphur I'm gonna get the niter. I'm gonna get the sulfur, and the niger, and the butter churn. Mix it up as carefully as Katie with a recipe. Katie in the kitchen with the carrots and the cabbage are cooking up a recipe as simple as mine. With Katie new, Katie would frown. Her butter churns the bomb that brings them down, down, downy, down, down. One stick of gel ignite. One length of fuse. Father said a butter churns the best thing to use his father told him that may leave no clue
0: And then, of course, there's Down. Somehow, the song Down is even funnier and more astonishing than Doyle's first song. It's like Larry Grossman and Ellen Fitzhugh, the writers, wanted to write a musical that was only about Irish train bombs and the men who make them, but they couldn't work it into a full project, or when they did, they were told to go away. (laughs) So their solution, apparently, was to shove them into a show about a chicago burlesque house at one point doyle is singing oh my god it's so fucking funny he's singing about making a bomb in a butter churn and he sings the lyric bomb bomb bumpety bomb you might as well have him sing hoy toy 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 potatoes and lucky charms to get away from my pot of gold enough i, I <laughs> not enough i can't get enough it's so stupid how do you not laugh at that how did no one understand? Understand That this would be laughable Oh, if Katie knew that I was making a bomb uh, She'd be so upset That she would frown I think she would do more than frown, Doyle Yeah, if she knew that you were making a bomb Intended to kill people I think that she would be a little upset Oh, you know, Katie has her recipe She uses carrots and cucumbers But I, I use fucking gunpowder And other such wicked Wicked ingredients, I do say Because I'm making a wicked
2: device
0: Enough. And then we come to the finale. I think about my commentary for Shrek when listening to the finale for Grind, uh, which also has its characters. If you remember in Shrek, the characters in that show and this show, they make a big display, this declaration of how they're making their place and telling their story now, within the last minutes Of the show. They're saying now it's time to begin living our lives, telling stories that are worth hearing about now. The last two and a half hours or whatever you spent in the audience, that's nothing. Now we're really gonna start telling a story that's
2: truly
0: inspiring. What a fuck you to the audience. Everything that came before no, nah, 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 Now is when we're truly activated as characters. So I like how the characters keep talking about how they're not going to be, uh, you know, uh, tied down by the standards of the past. You know, these color lines that have segregated them for so long. The past doesn't matter anymore. They're not leaning on it. They're not relying on it anymore. Except that musically, in a bit of, you know, true irony, musically, Grind totally relies on the musical standards of the past which is an irony i can't ignore you want to make your place grind you want to make you want to stake your own claim plant a flag in the ground then go back to the drawing board focus up on what kind of tone and style and musicality you want to embrace above all others and maybe start from there start from scratch that is the song deconstruction portion of this episode and now we are going to hear from our sponsor 5678 coffee take it away Oh, hi there. It's me, Winsor Peru from The Music Man. Oh, you know, The Music Man. You remember me, Lil Winsor Peru? Oh, at the movie, I was played by a little redheaded boy named Ron Howard. He doesn't really look like me, though. I got big buck teeth with a big space between my teeth. It gives me a big old lisp. And I self-conscious about it. Oh, My mom, Mrs. Peru, who's like a million years old, and my uh, sister, who's basically old enough to be my second mother, oh, they're always telling me, Winsome, you gotta work on that lisp. You gotta work on that lisp, but I'm too busy running around drinking 5, 6, 7, eight coffee, you know what I'm saying? And they're like, oh, come on, Winsome, you can't be drinking that coffee, you're just a little kid. And I'm like, shush, you don't know what you're talking about. This coffee is delicious. It's better than candy. It's better than soda pop. It's better than any of the comic books down at the Local five and dime, I do say. Uh, And so you you gotta get yourself a cup of this coffee. If you're in Gary, Indiana. If you're in Paris, Louisiana, France, New York, or Rome, you gotta go down. You gotta get yourself a freaking cup of. Let's see. Uh, okay, oh, I'm going to try a little harder. Okay, I'm going to stop drinking all the coffee. I'm going to be a good little boy. I've changed my mind. And I'm going to try to work on my lisp. So let's see. You know what? I'm just going to have to keep working on it. <laughs> Five, six, seven, eight coffee. You can count on it. And you can count on me a little. Oh, I just shat myself. Final thoughts on Grind. You know, beyond that fun opening number, there were truly aren't any musical moments that got my hairs standing on end. There were moments where I was intrigued, but I I was never blown away. I was never fully on board or impressed. I found myself checking out a lot, actually, while listening to the album, and that was a big disappointment. The book on its own actually led me to have high hopes for the overall work, but listening to the album brought me down to earth, and it even lowered the book's standing in my mind by association, which was a really big bummer. Now, as a reminder, the winner of the Tony Award for Best Musical in 85 was Big River. And the other nominees that year were Leader of the Pack and Quilters. Now, I could, you know, try to answer the question, did Grind deserve to win Best Musical that year? But honestly, when I look at the overall slate and, you know, the other two shows that we have yet to discuss, if if those other two shows from that season are as bad as I've heard, I'm willing to declare a four-way, no-win tie across the board for the 1985 season. That's, That's where I'm standing as far as uh, 1985 is concerned. Uh, it is now time to rank the show. We're going to place grind within the uh, currently existing rankings of all the other shows that we've talked about. Uh, I-, I will say, right before we do that though, I have made a few changes to the rankings. That's right. I think this is the first time this has ever happened, but uh, we have made some, there has been some movement is what I'm trying to say. So, Man of La Mancha, previously that was number one. It has moved to the number three slot, uh, and the Bubbling Brown Sugar slot has changed from number six to number seven. Okay, And we're going to put Grind, now Now I'm going to put Grind at number nine. We've covered ten shows at this point. We're going to put it at nine between The Goodbye Girl and Big River. So the, the list reads as such. Number one, Carolina Change. Number two, Passing Strange. Number three, Man of La Mancha. Number four, Kiss Me Kate. Uh, number five, Natasha Pierre and The Great Comet of 1812. Number six, Shrek the Musical. Number six, 7, Bubbling Brown Sugar, number 8, The Goodbye Girl, number 9, Grind, and number 10, Big River. Now, I'm putting Grind at number 9, as I said, uh, but why? Well, let's start here. The Goodbye Girl and Grind have a common problem. Both are beholden to older eras in musical theater that were no longer being represented on stage via new musicals when they originally premiered, and neither is able to stand toe-to-toe with the shows they're trying to emulate or imitate. They just make Audiences yearn for revivals of those old shows. Uh, But at least, at least, The Goodbye Girl is. Functional. It's cold, but it's functional. It gets where it needs to go without ever once falling to pieces. But during Doyle's songs specifically, Grind really jumps the tracks, not to invoke a train. <laughs> I, not to not to get silly with the, the train bomb comparisons. But the show jumps the tracks in those moments, and it sails into territory that is so bizarre. And it happens enough that it betrays a surprising lack of focus and distance Discipline on the part of the creators. And then beyond those massive hiccups, it's all over the place stylistically, never once settling on a clear aesthetic because it's too busy trying to capture the magic of the other shows that we've mentioned. Oddly enough, the tiny amount of what the fuck fascination I have with Grind is what puts it above the likes of Big River. Grind is an oddity that's tackling compelling material in a batshit way, and it's unsuccessful in, the, in that attempt. Uh, and I would seek out a revival if we ever were were to get a revival of Grind. Uh, But Big River, I still view that as such corkboard pablum. I wouldn't sit through it for free. Look, if it seems like I'm rambling and had a hard time figuring out where to rank Grind, it's because I am, and I did. I want to give Grind credit. I want to be generous. And I think with a reworking of the book and a revitalization of the score in the hands of other artists, artists of color, hint, hint, it could be worthy of a higher slot. But I can't ignore what I know, and what I know is that the score is flat. And I know that the book is all over the place. And I can't ignore that simply because its intentions are to tackle big issues with style and panache. You aimed high, you had big goals grind, but you absolutely missed the mark. So for right now, as a, as a reminder, you're going to be sitting at number nine between The Goodbye Girl and Big River. And it's now time to determine which show we discuss next. And to do that, we'll need to take a ride on the musical carousel, otherwise known. As the random number generator I named after that classic Rogers and Hammerstein show, Little Orphan Spammy, the spam that had no mommy and also no daddy. Everyone ready? Okay, great. Then away we go! <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, we have just stepped off of the musical carousel and I have discovered that the next show that we will be discussing is none other than the 1950 winner of the Tony Award for Best Musical, that being South Pacific. So get ready for a nice, chunky deconstruction of South Pacific next week. Thanks again for listening to the show. If you would be so kind as to go to our Patreon page and consider donating on a month-to-month basis, I would be incredibly appreciative of your generosity. That page is patreon.com music Man Pod. If you were to donate $1 a month, uh, you would be able to uh, be the recipient of a verbal shout-out each and every week. So thank you very much, Brad, Matt, Zach, and Marisol. That is your verbal shout-out for the week. I hope you liked it. If you donate $3 a month, you get a special musical shout-out in the style of a composer or character of your choice. If you donate $5 a month, you get to determine which show I discuss here on the podcast. And if you donate $10 a month, you will get access to our monthly bonus series, which is known as The Snow. Club. The Snub Club is dedicated to shows that were never nominated for the Tony Award for Best Musical. In February, we discussed Amelie. And on the last Wednesday of this month, we'll be dropping the uh, March episode, which is dedicated to Stephen Sondheim's Merrily We Roll Along. The money that you donate will go towards the, ca- the purchase of cast recordings, movie rentals, and it would also offset the Podbean costs. Podbean is, of course, the service that hosts us. Thank you very much, Madam Podbean. If we were to ever get to a point where uh, people are giving a combined total of $100 in monthly donations, I would begin a a new series known as The Movie Musical Man, where I talk about movie musicals uh, for shows that we normally wouldn't encounter. Uh, Examples could include The Greatest Showman, The Last Five Years, any number of movies we could be talking about, but that's for the future. If you're listening to uh, the show through iTunes, thank you very much. Please consider going to the iTunes store and leaving a five-star rating and writing a lovely review. Uh, You could be streaming through any number of services, Spotify, Stitcher, or Podbean, as I mentioned, musicalmanpod.podbean.com You can follow us on Twitter at musicalmanpod, and you can email us at musicalmanpod at gmail.com. We got a wonderful email from listener Lily Anderson this week. I actually asked her to reach out to me uh, with some information regarding a production of Into the Woods she did as a student, and it was uh, when I got the bare details, I was fascinated, and when I got the full story, it was even better. Uh, she, She writes, It is January 2001. The place is Fairfield, California The play is Into the Woods My all-time fave, The Reason I Love Theater A perfectly constructed show There are 125 kids registered to perform Youth theater is paid to play, Lily explains Every person who registers will be on stage We all paid $150 to be here We all audition That's, that's the funniest part to me They pay and then they audition Our director is 24 years old and miserable well, who would it be 24 years old trying to wrangle 125 students? She goes on to say the kids, they, they range in age from 14 to 18 years old. The kids who are four to eight years old are fairies and birds and gnomes in the show. They are wholly nonverbal. They run on and off stage. They are merely atmosphere in the woods. Uh, kids nine to 12 are villagers and fairy tale creatures not included in the leading cast. A lot, she says lots of Disney Halloween costumes being repurposed, like the Broadway revival that would be put up the next year. There are three little pigs and a second wolf. Two sixth grade princes chase two sixth grade princesses between scenes. That's, I just can't get over that. Snow White and her huntsmen have a plot and I, I asked her more about that. And she says that the Snow White, there was also a Sleeping Beauty storyline. Uh, they were played out in panto between scenes, uh, leading to their one line at the end. They were given lines at the end. And there was also, also a nonverbal Wicked Queen, Huntsman, Dwarves, etc. cetera. Uh, these parts were considered leads for the little kids. Ay, 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 give me a break. Kids 13 to 18 are the leads, uh, Lily explains. They were named characters or trees. Yep, she writes trees in the woods in black and green silk capes that were the tornado in the combination whiz slash wizard of oz from the year before. I've heard of productions like that that get, you know, cut and copy and paste from the two different sources to sort of make a mega-Oz show, but it will never cease to amuse me. Uh, The faces of the people playing the trees, by the way, are smeared, uh, they are smeared, smudged in black bark paint. uh, Bark paint? I can't get over that. All the people who couldn't sing (laughs) were stuck on the top platform doing sun salutations to quote, represent the woods during the show instead of a set. They do do not have leaves. Uh, and she reminds us they they spent $150 to be in the show and simply stand as trees. Uh, thank you very much, Lily, for this, this exhaustive deconstruction. She also went on to say that the show was over three hours, which I predicted with, with no hesitation. I, I knew for a fact that the, there's no way that that show couldn't have been over three hours, and I wish I could have been there. I wish I could have been there. Thank you, Lily. Thank you very much for writing in. I just gotta say it all over again. Ah, oh! <laughs> there There you go. You know what that sound means? Yes, just when the fun is starting, comes the time for parting. Oh well, we'll catch up some other time, specifically on the next episode of The Musical Man. So long, farewell, auf Wiedersehen, and good night.